Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you guys and to worship with you. As I'm sure you heard, I was exposed to COVID earlier in this week, but praise God, I got a negative test result back and I'm feeling fine. And so I'm going to continue the quarantine through today, Sunday, and then be back at work on Monday. But I'm going to be preaching to a camera once again. And so if the Lord wills, he will speak to us all the same through his word, through his spirit. And we've got a heavy text this morning. It's from Acts chapter 7. I realize it's Valentine's Day, and I realize that um, this is a heavy topic for Valentine's Day. But from Acts chapter 7, we are going to study a theology of martyrdom. So I'm going to read for us Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when they had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. Let's pray together. Lord, life is so short. It is so momentary. It is so fleeting. It is like sand in our hands that falls away. And so I pray, Lord, that you will give us a vision, not just for this life, but for the life eternal to come, that what we do in this world is in preparation for the next. You can do that. Your Holy Spirit can teach us and show us those things because of Jesus' powerful name. And so we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, friends, I want to ask a question. How are you motivated? I mean, you probably just made New Year's resolutions. I know I did. And a question comes to us. What like gets us out of bed in the morning? What gets us moving? What motivates us to do what we know we need to do? And that's really a question that all leaders think about. How am I going to lead a group of people to do the task that we have set before us? And usually the answer to motivation falls somewhere between the carrot and the stick, right? It's either the positive motivation, this is the benefit, or it's the negative motivation. These are the consequences, whichever one we're going to lead forward to do what we need to do. So... A parent is debating somewhere between offering screen time and threatening a timeout. You've got teachers who are thinking about a sticker chart or demerits. You've got a coach who's talking about pizza parties or wind sprints. Either way, it's this is the benefit. This is the consequence. Let's get motivated together to do this thing. Well, that's how we work as human beings. And so it's interesting to think, How does the Lord choose to motivate us? What does he put before us and behind us? What does he say to us that motivates us to do what he's calling us to do? 
And actually, the answer from the Bible is a number of different things. God has made us complex beings, as we just were thinking about with human leadership. And so it goes to show that he will find different ways to move us, to draw us into himself and further obedience into him. And so there's actually a lot of different ways that God motivates us to obey. One of those, first and foremost, in the positive realm is that all of our life is really gratitude in response to the gospel. We can't earn anything. It is all that what God has done for us in his son on the cross. We live a life motivated to obedience out of gratitude for Jesus. I obey because I'm grateful for the gospel. Well, number two, there's also this positive desire to be useful in his kingdom. We have this new desire by the Spirit that we want to be useful to God. We want to do what God's calling us to do. Uh, when Jesus told the parable of the seed and the sowers, he said a seed planted in good soil is going to grow 30, 60, and 100-fold in its fruit. And who among us in the church doesn't want to bear a 100-fold fruit for the kingdom? We have that desire that God has put in us. And so I obey because I want to be useful. Well, there are also negative motivations for obedience that God tells us that he disciplines us at times when we disobey. He says in Hebrews that, of course, God disciplines us because he's a loving father. And what father wouldn't discipline his kids? And so that actually becomes a negative motivation. I obey the Lord because I don't want his discipline. I don't want him to show me the hard way how to obey him. Well, it's interesting to think about all those ways that God motivates us, but today we're talking about a fourth motivation, once again in the positive side, most of these are in the positive side, to obey the Lord, and that motivation is this, you and I will see Jesus. We're going to see Jesus face to face. I obey because this light momentary affliction will fade and my all and everything will be the spotless, glorious face of Jesus forever. That motivates obedience. I mean, this has captured the imagination of the church for millennia. We can't see the triune God now, but we will see him soon. And biblical writers have been talking about that over and over again for thousands of years. Job says, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. King David said, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. Paul says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we shall see face to face. The apostle John in the last book of the Bible said, behold, he is coming in the clouds and every eye will see him. This promise has tantalized the church for all time. And if it is true, if it's true that we will see Jesus face to face, then we must ask this question that we'll come back again at the end of the sermon. What act of obedience, what act of sacrifice, what cost to ourselves can this vision not sustain that, friend, you and I will see the Lord? 
Let's talk about Stephen. Let's talk about his story. I've heard the Christian life described as a blank contract. Maybe you've heard this before, but when we're called to be a Christian, you simply get this contract metaphorically that says God's calling on your life at the top, and then it's a blank piece of paper, and at the bottom there's a place to sign your name, meaning you sign it before you ever know what God is going to call you to do. You don't make any negotiations. You don't offer any kind of trade-offs. You don't make any kind of deals. It's none of this, if you give me a spouse, I'll do this. If you keep me cancer-free, I'll live my life in this way. The Christian life is not a bargaining table. It's an altar. Little lambs don't make negotiations. We either climb up on that altar to be a living sacrifice or we don't. And that's that of the Christian life. And essentially, that's what happens to Stephen, right? You get a blank contract from God to Stephen, slid across the table. Stephen signs at his conversion, however soon that was before our passage as a new believer. And only then do these harrowing details appear before him. Stephen is going to live a very short Christian life. I mean, he comes to faith and he gets a reputation for being filled with the Holy Spirit and the church sees that and so he gets elevated to this high position within the Jerusalem church. He's one of the seven proto-deacons of this group and then he will be dead by stoning before the ink has dried on his contract with God. And watching a story like that in Scripture will lead each of us to ask ourselves in those quiet moments of sacrifice long after this sermon is done, did Stephen die regretting his faith? Will I die regretting my faith? Well, after Stephen was named one of the seven, we've studied his life and the few details that we had, he throws himself into this mercy ministry. He's been given the task of daily distribution of food to widows, and he does that, and he's talking about Jesus wherever he goes until the authorities say, enough is enough, we're tired of hearing about this. They go, they arrest him, they charge him, ironically, with blaspheming God. That's where we saw him dragged before the council, and then we studied Stephen dropping this This 52-verse sermon from Abraham to Solomon climaxing in Jesus where he turns the tables and the accused, he accuses his accusers and says, actually, you blaspheme God. You resist God. You continue to condemn God's prophets and it is you who are guilty, not me. And when that happens, they cover their ears They don't want to hear from the Lord. They rush him to kill him. Now, I brought back the coffee mug for our kids, but today's illustration from the coffee mug is a hard one. We're not talking Starbursts and Skittles. I have in my coffee mug stones because I want to tell you about the stoning of Stephen. According to the Sanhedrin, according to the Jewish law, stoning was to be done in a particular way. When someone was condemned and proved guilty, they were dragged outside the city 
They were stripped naked. They were thrown off a great height. And when they hit the ground, it was the person who witnessed their crime that threw the first stone, and it was a large stone aimed at their head. And then the next witness would throw one at their chest. And if the person wasn't dead yet, then the entire community would pick up stones and they would throw them at the person condemned to die. A brutal, brutal way to die. Now, we can't tell from our text if all of these steps were followed. In fact, it doesn't really sound like this was an execution that was thought out. It sounds more of mob violence, but we know that it took a while because Stephen had time to pray multiple times. And while he's being stoned, we also get this sinister note in verse 58 that the mob who was throwing stones at Stephen had time to take off their coats and lay them at Saul's feet. And that's the first mention in the book of Acts of this great early tormentor of the church, Saul, who is turned Paul, who will be used mightily in God's hands. So Stephen is outside the city. He's being stoned while he stands and prays. He's being stoned while he kneels and prays. And finally, he dies. I want us to look long and hard at verses 55 and 56. Could you look at that in your Bibles? It says, But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now there's a lot there in those two verses But I want to ask two theological questions of those two verses to better understand a theology of martyrdom and exactly what happens when a Christian dies. So number one, my first question, what happens the moment a believer dies? The moment we close our eyes to this world, we open our eyes to the next. What actually happens? Now, if your knee-jerk response was to say, well, a Christian goes to heaven as soon as they die, then you're wrong. And let me explain. I only think you're wrong if by heaven you mean the new heavens and the new earth. The new Jerusalem that's come down out of heaven, the streets that are paved with gold, the world as it will appear after Judgment Day. If you think a believer immediately in death goes to that place, then you're wrong in thinking that because God has not recreated that place yet. It doesn't exist yet. That's the everlasting state that only comes at Judgment Day. The Bible says on Judgment Day that the dead will be raised, the living will assemble, God will separate the sheep from the goats, those who have trusted in Him in this life. They will enjoy that new heaven and new earth and new Jerusalem with the tree of life before God's presence forever. And those who have rejected Jesus in this life, they will be cast into a lake of fire in torment and suffering forever. And that will happen for all eternity in the eternal state, but those two places don't exist as they will exist 
There's a different way in which they exist now, which theologians call the intermediate state, not the everlasting state. And so there's a lot of disagreement on what happens as soon as a person dies. And some theologians, they speculate that because we have this intermediate state, maybe there's something like soul sleep. Maybe when a, a believer dies, they, they enter this dreamless sleep and they only wake up on that last day, judgment day, in which they will then stand before God. Some others speculate that maybe as soon as we die, we enter this nether world that's like this soul-searching phase that those who didn't trust in Jesus in this life, they now have a chance after death to then convert and to trust in Jesus for their salvation. Others say, hey, maybe this intermediate state is a place of purgatory. Maybe this is the time where we begin to do penance for our sins, even if we're saved. Well, our passage here in Acts chapter 7 joins a bunch of other passages in Scripture that refute all three of those and agree with other Scriptures that explicitly say to be absent from the body as a believer is to be present with the Lord. Just like that parable Jesus told of the poor man Lazarus and the rich nameless man, to close our eyes in this life, in death, is to open our eyes in a conscious eternity. And for the believer, even though the new heavens and the new earth has not been recreated yet, we will be ushered into God's presence immediately with joy to then wait with him for that hour he has not revealed for judgment day. God can say to us in death, like he said to the thief on the cross, son, daughter, today, today, you will be with me in paradise. That happens the moment we die. My second question might sound like an odd one. My second question from this passage, why is Jesus standing? Why do we see two references to Jesus up on his feet standing? Now, I ask that because there are dozens of Bible verses that teach us that when Jesus ascended into heaven after the cross, after the resurrection, in his ascension, he sat down at God's right hand. I get that from places like Matthew 26, Mark 16, Luke 22, Romans 8, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, 8, 12, Psalm 110, Ephesians 1. I could go on and on and on. They all say what Hebrews 10, 12 says emphatically. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus says this about himself in Revelation 3:21. The one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Which is why when we do the Apostles' Creed, we say week after week, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Now, the reason that scripture is so emphatic about this is because Jesus is ascending and sitting at God's right hand spells absolute completion. 
When he died and rose again from the dead, it is finished. There is nothing else to be done. And Jesus has assumed this seat because there's no more work for him with respect to our salvation. To use an absolutely absurd parallel, if you worked all day in the yard on Saturday and you pruned and you weeded and you chopped wood and then the day was coming to an end and you lit a fire pit and you grabbed a drink and your book and you sat down, that's the universal sign to wife and kids I am done for the day. (laughs) I'm absolutely done. Don't tell me about another project. Don't tell me to hang something or pull something or deal with something. I am done. That's the absurd parallel (laughs) to Jesus who is seated at God's right hand. When the devil whispers to us, it's not finished. He's not done. Your sin is distancing you from God and you're not sure if you will be saved. You answer him. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. I believe that Jesus has ascended and has sat down at his right hand and it is finished. But no sooner do we have a theology of Jesus's heavenly seatedness Then we hear twice, not once, but twice in our passage, Jesus is standing. As in no sooner had he sat down than he got up. Jesus was on his throne. He ascended in Acts chapter 1. He sat down next to his father and had been there for all this time, we can presume. But now he is standing again. And it won't surprise you that commentators don't exactly agree on this. But most of them swing towards the simplest reading of this passage. That in some just marvelous, beautiful, awesome way, Jesus is watching his servant Stephen. He sees that he's about to die. He stands up from his throne, right at the edge of the dimension of heaven, so that he might readily receive his servant into his presence. Can you imagine? And I wonder if Jesus said to Stephen, not in our passage, but what he says in his parable that he will say to us, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Jesus stands to receive his servant, Stephen. Let me close with this. Friend, I tell you, all of us will die. Unless Jesus returns very soon, all of us will die. And most of us, if not all of us, will die at a time that we don't know and probably sooner than we expect. Now, that's something we know in our heads, but it's hard to to gather in our thoughts. I kind of or in our hearts. I kind of think that death is for other people. That's something that happens to 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 other people and not to me or at least not to me for a while. And so I don't need to think about it. But Acts 7 says, think about it. Know with certainty that you and I will die, that you and I will stand before God. 
and think on a life that is fitting to match the kind of king that we will see in his glorious throne room. Now, most religions have some kind of scale between our good deeds and bad deeds. Like we take the good stuff we did in this life and the bad stuff we did in this life and we put it on a scale and we hope that our good deeds are heavier than our bad deeds and that whoever God is, he will accept us into heaven. And we know as believers, you can throw that scale out. It doesn't exist because it's all of Jesus' goodness and he's taken all of our badness and we stand perfectly righteous before him. We have a very different scale in our sanctification in which we are being presented with the fleeting, passing, minuscule, worthless pleasures of this life and the infinite, surpassing, beautiful glory of Jesus and his presence, not to earn but to enjoy, and we are asked, being asked which one weighs more. And we come back to that great and personal question for every believer to ask themselves, if you know for certain that you will see Jesus, what act of obedience, what sacrifice, what cost to yourself or your home or your family can this vision of Jesus not sustain? I mean, what Christian in the universe, upon their death being ushered into God's presence, will pine about the fleeting pleasures that they missed in this life because they were so consumed with being occupied with Jesus' presence for all eternity? Who among us will say on that great and glorious day, oh, how I wish I had hoarded just a few more things for myself? Oh, how I wish I got the rush of telling just one more white lie. Oh, how I wish I had the pleasure again of of just masturbating one more time. Oh, how I wish I had just fished for another compliment. Oh, how I wish I had just spent more time with me increasing and Jesus decreasing so that I could have been celebrated more in this life when those trifling, pitiful things stand next to Jesus himself, how they fade, how they become worthless, how they are so small in our eyes. If we could see what Stephen saw on that day, or we could see what Stephen sees now, Those fleeting pleasures are gone in our estimation. And what replaces them is the Savior who bought us and freed us, who completed that work and sat down next to his heavenly Father at his right hand and will stand to receive us into his presence. And that will sustain anything anything at all that Jesus calls us to do. Let's pray together. Lord, increase our imagination for what this will be. That you will reveal yourself to us, that we will see you as you are, that the glory that dropped prophets on their faces, that will be ours to treasure forever. You will give us your very self 
and we will be full of joy. I pray that vision sustains this life, that glory teaches us what to value here and now, and we will live these small, fleeting lives in light of eternity. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.